Radio Draw. It's Radio Drome, which you should be listening to on VHS. Does that even make sense? Sure, I listen to stuff on VHS, and I watch it, too. What about you, Alex, the Marquis de Suede? I listen to the movie VHS as an MP3. Does that count? No. No, 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 that doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) It's an oddly specific thing for somebody to do. Well, this is Alex, the Marquis de Suede-Jowski. He does oddly specific things. (laughs) So tonight is obviously going to be a VHS special, and unfortunately you can't get VHSs at AdamandEve.com anymore, but if you do go to AdamandEve.com, use the promo code DROME, you can still get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, it's not VHS, but it's DVDs, free U.S. shipping, and a free mystery gift, all for using the promo code DROME at AdamandEve.com. I did an interview with Mike Malloy of Plastic Movies Rewound, which... He is still working on the Kickstarter for. He's shot the movie, but he can't. He needs funds to edit the damn thing. We'll be playing that in a little bit. Brad, I know you're a VHS collector, same as I am. What draws you to VHS in this digital age? Why do you still go back to it? Nostalgia has a lot to do with it. It's it's what I started collecting as a kid. So for reasons like that, I I still do, and as well as. The kinds of movies I watch, the kinds of movies that I'm into, the kinds of movies that I collect on VHS, at least speaking genre-wise, because sometimes specific, sometimes I'll get like the worst-looking movie just because it happens to be in a big box. But genre-wise, I mean, I'm a horror guy. I'm an exploitation guy. I like the feel of VHSs when it comes to those kind of movies. I like the certain graininess that it has to it. I like the weight of the VHS. I like how much more original and thought is put into the covers and the boxes of VHSs when it comes to these movies. And honestly, really, any movie when it comes down to that. But sitting there, to me, watching something like Friday the 13th on VHS, and you have kind of that grit that the VHS has to it. Isn't in the best quality? Is it in the best shape? To me adds to the feel of that kind of movie. Uh, yeah, um, I, I agree. Adds, I think horror the, horror yeah. plays better on VHS. It, it, yeah. it, it The darks are darker, and that sometimes adds to the tone that, let's face it, a digitally remastered DVD sometimes loses. Even tracking lines add to it. I found horror nowadays with on digital to be far too clean and not horror anymore. Yeah, I, I agree, especially when we're talking in terms of a slasher flick, in terms of an exploitation movie. You know, I to me, that grit adds a lot more to it. It adds a lot more to the atmosphere and even can add more to the intensity, too, and, and, some, of the, and some of the realism, depending on the movie. Whereas you can watch the same movie on a DVD, and Blu-ray definitely has this problem, and it'll kind of take away some of that for me. It, it, it will. So for those kind of movies... I really prefer VHS tapes. And see, I, I, I can't disagree with you, because I've said this before, that like I grew up watching UHF cable stuff, which I ended uh-huh. up taping, 
for like the Hammer movies and those 3 a.m. movies, those Hammer movies, when I see them digitally remastered, widescreen, and stereo sound, they don't look right. Those movies don't look right to me unless they're in a beat-up, full-frame, scratched-up print with mono sound that's slightly faded. That's how a Hammer movie is supposed to look, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I grew up with. That's what that's how I grew up watching it. That's what I'm used to. So certainly, that's what I prefer with those kind of movies. Now, if if I'm watching something like The Godfather, I'd rather watch a cleaned up version of that. I'd rather watch a widescreen version of that. I'd probably rather watch the DVD than my VHS tape for it. That's a completely different kind of movie with a completely different kind of feel. That, I think, is kind of the difference there. That's why I think that one reason why I still think DVD definitely serves a purpose and DVD has some advantages over VHS and VHS has some advantages over DVD. My problem with Blu-ray is that Blu-ray for about any movie is a little too fucking clean looking. Oh, absolutely. Especially if it's a even high budget, but especially if it's a lower budget horror or sci-fi film from the late 70s, early 80s, when you see it on Blu-ray... You can see the makeup exactly where it ends on the guy. You can see the matte lines. It actually, VHS actually hides some of the special effects problems sometimes. I think I've mentioned a few times on on here that uh, my Blu-ray for Halloween 3, you can see the makeup all on Tom Atkins' face. Kind of takes you out of the movie a little bit. (laughs) Completely unnecessary for that kind of movie. For whatever reason, and, and this is not a complaint, You've got a lot of VHS collectors that are of the younger generation, the ones that grew up with DVD being the mainstay. Some of them don't even remember VHS from their youth. Why do you think some of the the youth are gravitating towards it? Do you think it is kind of a hipster, oh, this is uncool, so it's cool? Or do you think that it's just sort of, hey, these are some cool-ass movies and they just look better on VHS? Well, I think it could be both. I think you could have some young people out there that are certainly do, doing it for like the same reason a hipster would collect vinyl and stuff like that. But I, I, I know for a fact that there's plenty of young people out there who get VHS tapes because that's what they prefer. And I guarantee it's probably because of their parents. I grew up watching movies and listening to music that I wasn't around for, that I wasn't alive for. It's because of my parents. You know, my parents had really good taste and I grew up with that kind of music. Same with some uh, TV series that were around in the 1960s and in the 1970s that I watched. And yeah, I think there's plenty of parents out there like probably have the same attitude as I do on VHS. And they kind of pass that along to their kids. I was at a con about a year ago and there was a fan who came to the table, had to have been eight, nine years old. And he had from his collection a VHS tape of Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning, uh, came from his own collection of tapes, was not a hipster-looking kid, just a kid who really digs that stuff. You know, he was talking not unlike I was at that age, collecting the same type of things. And his parents were there, and were and seems like it's, they're raising the boy right. Uh, so yeah, I autographed this tape for him and gave it back, and that was pretty cool. So, Alex, you're not a VHS collector in the same vein that Brad and I are. What's your experience with VHS? Do you still do you still gravitate towards it if you have the DVD as well? Or are you just, no, I want better picture quality? If I already have the VHS, I'm not going to go get the DVD. But I don't collect new VHS 
as much as I used to. But the big reason I keep VHS around is for the kids because of DVDs and Blu-rays being too fragile and I've lost too many to sticky fingerprints. I let the kids have their own VHS player because those things were durable. Oh, that, oh that's hell a, yeah. That's, that's another good point. I That's another good point, too. I can't believe I forgot to mention that earlier. Yeah, dear God, is VHS durable. I have VHS tapes from when I was – I have VHS tapes from like – when I was recording Saturday morning cartoons in 1986, I still have a couple of those tapes, and they play just as fine now as they did in 1986. I've got DVDs, and I don't mistreat my DVDs at all. I've got some DVDs that skip, that glitch like crazy. The difference, okay, DVDs, yeah, they may look better, but they're not as strong. They're not as strong. Yeah, the picture might the picture quality might be yeah, the picture quality can be superior to a pic, the picture quality of a VHS, but the medium's not as strong, it's not as dur- durable, and it's a hell of a lot more fragile. Yeah, a lot of times you'll get three, four viewings out of a DVD, and that's being super careful, like priceless comic book touching it. Well, you you also have DVD is also less durable in the fact of what amount of damage can be done. A VHS tape. Say the tape gets caught in the player and it snaps. You can make a splice. Yeah, you'll miss that little bit of the movie. You can splice it. I I once ran over a VHS tape that I dropped out of my car. I was able to take the spools of tape, put them into another case, and I still had the tape. A DVD, if if you scratch it in the wrong place, the whole disc is unplayable. I used to do that all the time if I found a busted up VHS in the street or something that had no label, I would put it back together to like, oh, I want to find out what movie was on here. It has like a mystery. You put it in, it's a snuff film. It was usually porn. Yeah, and, 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 and what you said too about, you know, the film snapping in a VHS tape. That's not even the fault of the tape. That's the fault of the VCR. <laughs> yeah, well, especially you know, you know? as VCRs got cheaper into the 90s, yeah. go, go and pick up an 80s VCR. They're a good 50 pounds sometimes, those early ones. Go and pick up a 1995 VCR. You can hold it on one hand on the tips of your fingers. There's nothing there. I got to a point where VCRs were easier to understand how they worked. If something was wrong, I could open it and figure out and fix it. Can't do that with a DVD player. Far too complicated. Well, DVD player, too. Like, I mean, you can say the same thing about a DVD player. The first DVD player I got was significantly heavier than, like, a later DVD player that i have same with some video game systems too can get can get lighter as the years go by but yeah the first the first vhs the first vhs player i had was uh oh yeah it was one of those big giant suckers that was a top loader and see because dvd is digital technology those early players will not play modern movies in most cases i remember even by 2000 Movies that were just coming out on DVD. I remember my DVD player would not play The Matrix. And I had to call the company and they're like, the laser that we used isn't advanced enough to read all the data that's on The Matrix DVD. Oh, you here's how it... You don't run into that on VHS. A VCR will play any VHS tape as long as it's NTSC <laughs> for America. Well, that's because they evolved how DVDs are. Because it used to be, remember, they had DVDs where only half the movie was on one or the other side, and then they figured out dual layer and things like that. Well, VHS had two tape 
movies too. VHS, sometimes you would in the middle of the movie you'd have to put in another tape. Dawn, the Dawn of the Dead one we talked about before, yeah. Yeah, my, uh, Barry Lyndon, stuff like that, Gone with the Wind. We're coming up next year on the 30-year anniversary of the Sony Betamax decision, mm-hmm. which even for people who don't remember what it was like to not be able to time shift, that was major. For those that, for a little bit of history, basically the movie studios and the TV studios said, it is illegal for you to record a TV program or a movie off of TV to watch it when you want to watch it. You did not pay us for that right. Therefore, they sued Sony, who was the maker of the Betamax. That is illegal for you to include a record button. The courts disagreed. And in 1984, the Sony Betamax decision basically allowed time shifting. Uh, my earliest memories was like, it, it, it has always been a norm for me that you could, the first VCR we had that was, yeah, one of those big giant suckers with the top loader, even that had a record button on it. It's always been the norm for me that VCRs had a record button on it. So, I mean, I wasn't, re- I wasn't really in tune or paying attention to stuff like that at the time. Why do you think the movie studios, and I'm talking the big boys, Paramount, Columbia, TriStar, Universal, etc., why do you think they always fight against every new innovation? Because they did not want to adopt the VCR model. They were the last ones to get into the VHS market. They were the last ones to get into online streaming. They were the last ones to get onto DVD. It was always the independents that blazed to this ground while the studios kind of went, oh, that's going to hurt what we already got. We don't want to mess it up. Why because do you they're... think that, that they, all, they all end up adopting it, yet they fight against it, even to the point of lawsuits in some cases, to go, no. It's, it's easy because they think they're going to lose advertising revenue. They're they're worried that people aren't going to see the commercials that that companies pay pay them to put on the TV that they're not going to see them because people will be fast forwarding through them. Hell, uh, sometimes when you watch something on on demand, they they don't allow you to fast forward through the program, which is really annoying when you play that and you specifically want to show somebody a certain part in an episode or in a TV special, but you can't fast forward it. Yeah, they're they're worried about losing advertising, and there were and certain studios would certainly be worried that yeah, people may be watching this program, but it's not registering in the ratings because people are recording it and then watching it later. So there's a number of reasons why there's initial boycott on it, and eventually they end up taking steps to where they adapt into that change to where. It suits them, whether it's counting ratings on on-demand programs or things that are being recorded VCR or making it to where you can't fast-forward the commercials, which is freaking retarded. Yeah, I hate that not being able to fast-forward the commercials just as much. And I completely agree here that it's mostly – I don't want to say greed because – they're worried about the money that makes their company work. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I don't necessarily want to say that it's greed because they are a business. Yeah, and a business has a duty to protect its interests if it hopes to stay in business. But like in the case of VHS, the reason that that they didn't want to, the big studios didn't want to release their movies on videotape was they thought it would hurt their TV sales. For instance, Star Wars didn't come out on VHS commercially. There was bootlegs for a long time. 
but officially until 1984 because people were buying HBO because HBO had the exclusive license to show Star Wars. So they said, if we put Star Wars on video, even though it'll sell like crazy, then HBO is going to be pissed at us because people aren't buying HBO just to watch Star Wars. Yeah, it was an untested market at the time. I mean, somebody had to go in there first to show that it was a viable market where profit could be made. And that that was, and no matter what you think of this guy today, someone like Charles Band, and he did it before Lloyd Kaufman did, really was the one that, that really trailblazed VHS. When he yeah. formed, it's now, it became Media Home Entertainment, but it was originally Mita, named after his wife. He was the first major VHS distributor, and he and he didn't have very many big names. I, mean, I think the biggest two titles he had were Halloween and Flesh Gordon, and they sold like crazy. So then people like Fox and Warner Brothers see people are willing to pay $80 to own Halloween. Well, we can start putting out our stuff. And for whatever reason, even when they adapted to it, they still fought against it. For a long time, I don't know about the other studios, but 20th Century Fox refused to release anything on video until it was at least six years old. Because, again, it's like, yeah, we can laugh about that now, but now it's hindsight. Now we're looking at it 30 years later. Then they didn't know. They didn't know if they were going to lose money on that. So it was a gamble. It was a gamble. Some people took that gamble, but others were a little skeptical of it. And I can see both sides of the equation on that. I can see. You know, hey, let's let's see if this works. Let's be innovative. Let's let's see if this is a viable thing. But I can th- also see, I can also see someone being slightly worried and want to see how it tests with other things first. And but, and they because they are a business, they do they do still want to make money. The one place I will go that was arrogant greed was Universal. The head of Universal at the time, when the Sony Betamax decision came down, was Sid Sheinberg. And he said why they, why Universal refused to put all their big movies out on video. You do not have the right to watch a movie a hundred times and only pay for it once. I'm quoting here. You should have to pay every single time you want to watch Jaws. That, to me, is greed. Every time you want to watch Jaws, you should pay us. You should not be able to pay 90 bucks and watch Jaws a thousand times. That, to me, is arrogant greed, Brad. At that time, had Jaws been on TV? Had it been on HBO? Had it? This was nine years after Jaws came out, so most likely. Okay, I, know, well, I know Jaws was on NBC in 1980, so it had at okay. least been on network TV at, by that point. You weren't paying extra money to see it then. Um, I, I know, it, it, and his argument had a twinge, like the anger I put in, in my quoting there, that's the way he said it. He's mad. He hmm. really thinks the idea of being able to buy a movie and watch it as many times as you want will destroy his company. That, I think, is just a myopic vision that if that had become the model, I don't think home video as we know it would have took off. No, no, no. And it was a, I mean, it's lucky enough that it did, $90 a pop to buy a movie. And 1983 $90, too. I mean, I've got a Beta Beastmaster that still has its $89.95 price tag on it, Brad. Oh, I've got a, I've got a, a clamshell of Caligula the Untold Story. 
a Joe D'Amato movie that has a $70 price on the back of it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> well, th- th- then let's move into a little bit of the format war. Because it kind of comes down to today, like like with the whole Netflix cropping thing that just came up recently. And I'm not talking aspect ratios here, but beta was always better quality. I mean, even if you laid side by side the same image from a beta movie and a VHS movie, the beta would be almost one and a half times clearer with sharper sound. So why do you think, outside of the porn issue, which we'll get into in a minute, why do you think VHS caught the masses so much? Why do you think VHS beat beta when it was lower quality? You know what? I don't know. People just people just gravitate towards one thing uh, more so than another. That, I mean, when you have... When you have two products out there with the same price, and most people aren't going to know a lot of the tech, issues, the specific tech issues like that, one of them's going to win, one of them's going to lose. I mean, we saw that with Blu-ray versus uh, H- the HD DVD format. There were a lot of people who liked the HD discs way more than Blu-ray, uh, but Blu-ray won. But Blu-ray run, bleh, but Blu-ray Ray won. It's a hard couple of words, and HD lost. People are basically sheep, and there were more people directing them towards VHS than beta. Well, and they're like I, like I hinted at the porn issue for what because Sony was the exclusive manufacturer of beta recorders of beta machines, and uh, obviously just like any kind of licensing thing, anyone can put a movie out on that. Beta said we will not allow porno on beta tapes. We will we will fight against and sue anyone that tries to make a porno movie and put it out on video. VHS said, porno here, porno here. As soon as Sony made that moral decision, VHS's sales jumped way up. Yeah, so you don't, part the, of it that's was... The wrong, that's the wrong time to be some kind of moral authoritarian on, on something like that. You're going to freaking lose. Yeah, so I think at that point, porno played a big part in it, which then by the, people just kind of went, I don't really care if the video quality is better. I can jack off to something on VHS where I can't on beta. I think that's what it really came down to at that point. That, I think, was was what killed them, even though beta hung on. I didn't realize this. They were still making commercial beta tapes by 1996. Oh, really? Wow. I I got a Columbia House Star Trek tape. You know, those big uh, clamshells that Columbia House put out? Mm -hmm. I, I found it at Goodwill, and I didn't open it up to look at the tape i get it home and it's a beta and it's got a copyright of 1996 on it i remember at our video store um even even in like the early 90s there would be some uh boxes there that were beta boxes i remember the our video store's copy of Flashdance was uh yeah it was the tape and the little clear gray box that was the rental box but the display box in front of it was the beta one <laughs> And they also used to, and I don't know if they, they, this is so much duplicitous, but I've got a couple of beta tapes, like a Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and Assassination with Bronson. It's in a VHS-sized box, and it's just got extra cardboard in the middle to hold the smaller tape, and only in tiny little print at the bottom does it tell you beta. So it was almost like they were trying to fool you into buying a VHS. I remember, like, come 1986, 87, our video store had just, like, one shelf that was beta, and that's what pushed my parents towards buying a VHS at that point, because there was just 
nothing left to rent on beta. I have a couple of like Warner clamshells that are clamshells for VHSs. The cover is for a VHS cover. The the clamshell itself, it, it's it's VHS, but on the bottom it also says beta. Are you are you thinking of those ones that had like the gradient backgrounds for that the clamshells? That, it's the Warner clamshells where, like, kind of in the middle, there'd be, like, a picture from the movie, and then around it would be, like, kind of the same graphic image with, like... Yes, this, okay, yeah. I, know, I know what's... What, what, yeah, I know the one you're talking, talking about. about. Yeah. The, I've got one of those for Caddyshack where it says it says VHS right on the spine. VHS. But the actual clamshell is made for a beta tape. And I'm like, was that a manufacturing error? Or were they just trying to dump these betas... And hope you didn't notice till you got home. I don't know because the uh, because yeah my my uh, clamshell for The Shining it it says VHS on it but but it also says Beta on it and when you open it up the molding inside of it is for a tape it's, yeah it, it's, it's, it's it's correct it's, yeah and I'm and I'm sure there's I'm sure there's an answer for that I'm positive there is I I just don't know what the answer is well and then another thing that kind of leads me to Alex's sheeple example for VHS versus Beta was. Beta was cheaper because they would literally charge you $3 more for VHS because, quote, there was more plastic. VHS cost more to commercially buy. I mean, renting was probably the same. But uh, like the distributors would say, we don't want to put as much out on VHS because it costs us more to ship it. So again, if it if it costs slightly more, why would you still flock to that? I just don't understand it. And I lived through it. Uh, because you have those people who want the more expensive product. <laughs> oh, th- 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 sort of that mindset, it's more expensive, that means it's going to be better? Yeah, keep in mind that probably around this time, households that had, I'm not saying every household, but a lot of them that had a VCR there at the very beginning, probably made a fairly decent amount of money, because VCRs were... Pretty damn expensive there at the beginning. Oh my! The first one my dad bought was eight hundred dollars. Yeah, and I'm talking nineteen eighty three dollars. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. If we're talking like a household that's shelving out money on that, you know, a lot of them probably have the mindset of like, well, let's shelve out extra money for what may be a higher quality product just because it's more expensive. My parents, they at that time had to make a decision. They're like, we got this Christmas bonus money. Are we going to buy a VHS player or furniture? I take it VHS player one? VHS player one. Let's go to our interview with Mike Malloy. If you guys want to help out with his Kickstarter, you get a lot of stuff for 75 bucks. So take a listen to the interview and we'll be back. I'm here with Mike Malloy. Tell me a little bit about plastic movies. Plastic Movies Rewound seeks to be uh, the definitive story on the 80s home video boom. I don't know whether your listeners know or not, but there is some competition in the field. A documentary called Rewind This played at South by Southwest uh, earlier this year, 2013. And Adjust Your Tracking, a documentary solely about VHS collecting, making the festival circuit, maybe not festival, but, uh, you know, playing these one-off theatricals at independent theaters right now. And they just got written up in Time magazine, which is giant. So it's very much the zeitgeist right now. You know, so that would seem to be good for the project. But the bummer is the extra competition, of course. You know, it's kind of a crowd. Filmmaking is a crowded field already. And to be making a documentary on a very specific subject that has two similar docs out there 
is a bummer. Also, kind of a bummer is the fact that I really want to go the extra mile. This is going to be six half-hour episodes in total three hours. I really want this to be the definitive thing. So that means I'm in dead last as far as schedule-wise of getting this thing out there. What are you going to be doing differently? Well, as I've said in some interviews, you know, all three are kind of relate to the 80s video boom. As you said, uh, Rewind This is kind of a uh, kind of a nice general introductory thing from what I hear. Not sure if it's running time, but if it's feature length, I'm assuming it's around 90 minutes. My project's going to be twice that, and I'm kind of glad that these other ones are out there as kind of companion pieces because that kind of frees me up a little to not chase names but chase stories. That's that's kind of been my attitude is to chase the great stories regardless of the names because the names, you know, I, I think have been kind of covered in the other two documentaries. Uh, people like Elvira was interviewed in Rewind This. And uh, Lloyd Kaufman of Troma has been interviewed. I think I think every single documentary except for mine has interviewed Lloyd Kaufman because there's even a fourth documentary now on the VHS video boom. I think that one has more of a horror slant, though. But, uh, yeah, my documentary not only uh, is going to kind of troll some of these weird side alleys of the phenomenon and get into some really kind of interesting stories that would not fit in in an introductory overview uh, video vending machines and home delivery of uh, pizza style home delivery of uh, videotapes, which was a, uh, you know, a kind of a failed thing that they tried in the 80s, stuff like that. And also, you know, really getting into the the meat of uh, low budget directors versus swindling distributors. That is, you know, they say drama is conflict. And man, there's no more conflict in the 80s home video boom story than right there. Who have you all contacted so far? And a distributor or to maybe someone who used to work for, say, Vestron Video, maybe someone like Ted Newsom, who I know has had problems with his movies not being calculated properly and things like that. Yeah, almost any filmmaker you talk is to is going to have gripes. And so far and, you know, before we finish this thing, we will get distributors. But so far, this thing is grossly imbalanced. But uh, we have a bunch of filmmakers griping about different ways they were swindled and even cooler, different ways that they use creativity to fight back against the distributors. But so far, we have not nailed down a single distributor interview, with the exception of Louis Justin, who is now one of these guys who is doing one of these new VHS startup companies. He was even written about in the New York Times because because this whole VHS revival is back and kids are collecting VHS now, a bunch of startup companies have popped up and are distributing new titles on VHS, distributing older titles again on VHS, putting really deluxe packaging out there and stuff. And he's one of those. So we have him, but he's not really what I'm going after as far as like these 80s distributors so that we can have their say in the matter, you know, because my journalistic ethics require me to have, you know, some balance. On that note, then, what ones would you like if you had the opportunity to hear from certain companies like would you like to find some old executive from Lightning Video that still remembers? Or, I mean, you know, Charles Band from Media and Wizard. Who would you like to get, assuming you can, from the distributor side? Well, the the one video label that sparked my whole interest in the era is Radon Home Video. They were kind of the, you know, lower lowest rung distributor. If I remember could... Radon right, they made Troma look high end. Yeah, indeed, indeed. You know, Radon stuff, with with some notable exceptions. I don't mean to lump all Radon filmmakers in together, but Radon stuff, man, could have just, the quality could not be understated. But Radon kind of mysteriously went went under, went bankrupt, 
and you know didn't pay their royalties from what I've been told. This is reportedly. And um, then all of a sudden, there a lot of the Radon titles came out on another VHS label called Mintex, which nobody could seem to track down. And I talked to a lot of Radon filmmakers, and they've never even heard of their the films being released on Mintex. I, I have I've, a lot of Mintex tapes. I I've, I own a lot of Mintex tapes. I couldn't find any info on them either. I didn't know they were connected to Radon. There is no real connection. Nobody has made any kind of real link, but it's just too coincidental that these filmmakers who never got paid for their Radon releases got a, a you know a notice in the mail saying that Radon had filed for bankruptcy, and then their films turn up on this label called Mintex. So. Um, yeah, it's there's all kinds of stories like that, and you know the real again the real inspiring thing is how the filmmakers fought back. One filmmaker broke into the distributor's office and stole his master back. Another filmmaker went on a current affair because he had a contact at a current affair and got his lead actress to turn on the waterworks and start crying to kind of shame nationally shame the distributor into paying up. Let's see, another one just decided he wasn't getting the distribution deal he wanted, so he just fixed up an RV painted the side of an RV to look like his video cover. For six months, he hit the road, and he sold his, his video, his film, direct to the people on the sidewalks of America. And so, uh, you know, all these great stories about the way the filmmakers, you know, tried to, tried to get an honest shake. Well, then let's go back to the beginning of this, and I mean this project. What made you want to do this? Because I assume it wasn't because of Rewind This and Adjust Your Tracking. What made you want to tell this story? Which is which I agree is a story that I think it needs to be told, maybe not four times, but it does need to be told. Yeah, and it needs to be told definitively. And uh, what's more, it needs to be told by the people who are actually doing it, and not just like some commentators and people who own movie websites and stuff. And that's what I'm aiming to do. What attracted me to the subject matter because I'm not a big 80s cinemaphile cinephile rather I'm not a big 80s cinephile almost everything I've done pertains to 70s tough guy cinema but I've always had older filmmaker friends and around 2003 I just started hearing all these stories from them that's that's the point at which this project crystallized in my mind because I'm always kind of attracted to tough guy material and the 80s home video boom was full of all kinds of shady dealings all kinds of, uh, you know, just, you know, borderline criminal activity, if not outright criminal activity. So it's actually this big, wild west, lawless entertainment frontier. And that's kind of the through line or thread, because it's going to be six different episodes on six different kind of uh, sub facets of the phenomenon. And that kind of thread about this being just this lawless, wild west entertainment frontier is going to inform all six episodes. Do you think this will speak to the younger people who maybe, and I know in my experience, I, I have listeners to my shows that weren't even alive when VHS was actually viable. Do you think you'll you'll just grab the, the older people, or is this being made to kind of educate the younger people who never experienced this? The younger people are the ones that are the collectors by and large right now in this whole VHS revival. But more to the point, and maybe this is what you were asking, uh, there's a lot of relevance to young filmmakers just diving in right now because a lot of filmmakers in the 80s saw this window opening up where all of a sudden you didn't need to you know, shoot 16 and blow up to 35. You could even shoot analog video and get a movie released. So this whole window opened up and a lot of filmmakers dove in at that point. But because all these fresh green filmmakers were, you know, taking the plunge at that time, 
there was just like all kinds of swindling to be had on the point of on the part of distributors. So it was because the industry was in chaos that filmmakers were majorly taken advantage of. And there's a lot of parallels right now with VOD and streaming kind of shaking things up and the business model. The dust has not cleared. The business not model has maybe not really been redefined. And so I feel like a, there's a potential for a lot of filmmakers to, yeah, get their films out there, but also just be terribly taken advantage of. So there is an instructional value. Now, how is the format that you plan to take? Is it going to be more traditional documentary-like or more anecdotal with, like the like you pointed out, the filmmakers telling their stories about what they did? Are you going to go chronologically? I mean, uh, what is the format you plan to take? I know you said six episodes, and I saw the sizzle reel, and I saw you even touch on, I don't know, and I'd like to know how much, the other formats, some of the the other quick flash-in-the-pan formats that didn't quite make it. Right, right. There's going to be an episode called uh, Alternative Formats and Delivery Methods, and that's going to talk about, you know, like the uh, RCA's uh, Selective Vision video disc, which they worked on from like 1961 to 1981, uh, 1969 rather to 1981. And by the time it finally hit the market, you know, videotape was firmly entrenched, video cassette, both beta and VHS, firmly entrenched in the marketplace. And nobody wanted something that was like a vinyl LP to watch a movie on because it skipped and it was just rife with problems. But uh, they tried anyways and was just an abysmal failure. And really cool that we got a vice president of RCA to go on camera and go on record with it because people generally don't like to talk about their failures. So we considered that a major coup. But yeah, all these different weird formats... And, you know, that'll be a, uh, an episode. It's not the doc series is not going to be chronological. It will all just kind of go down. The first two maybe will set up the premise and then the last one will conclude it. But the middle three are just going to go down these weird little side alleys of just the stuff that I find fascinating. Because, uh, you know, believe it or not, the alternative formats was also a different uh, way that it was just this, you know, Wild West entertainment frontier where people could get taken advantage of. We have the story of a uh, TV, a kind of a notorious TV salesman out of California called Madman Muntz. Madman Muntz bought uh, a bunch of leftover stock when compact video cassette failed. I don't know if you've heard of that. That was put out by Technicolor originally. It was about the size of an audio cassette, but it was videotape called compact video cassette. And when that format failed, Madman Muntz bought a whole, you know, like, I don't know, warehouse full or something. And when Hi8 took off as a format, because it was about the same cassette size, he tried to pass it off as Hi8. So really, just because the decade was just kind of in utter confusion, you know, there was like a lot of dirty dealing going on. Is, is that kind of more what you want to focus on or the positive aspect? I mean, if you had to describe a tone for what you're going for, what would the tone be? Definitely not going to be a love letter to VHS or love letter to the 80s video boom, or it's not going to be a puff piece you know, it's definitely going to be an objective look at the, you know, the kind of just shakeup that the 80s was for the entertainment industry. I have tremendous nostalgia for the 80s and, you know, the mom and pop independent video stores and all that. But I'm not going to I'm not going to just like overly glorify them. It's true that with any boom industry, a lot of people who get involved are the shady people. And that was definitely the case in the early days with the mom and pops. So I'm not going to gloss over that. How how close are you to having this completed at this point? At the point we're recording this, which should be about a week before it airs, week or two before it airs, 
how close are you to having completed the six episodes? Because the sizzle reel seemed to have a lot of stuff in it. How much of that is actually the documentary? Yeah, I have. No, I can't cut another frame until I get a new hard drive, and uh, for that reason, I'm doing a Kickstarter and uh, you know hoping to raise some scratch so I can buy. I think I need like an eight terabyte hard drive because this is my first project uh, doing full 1080. And I don't know if you've seen or heard about my Eurocrime documentary, but I'm very, in order to densely cram in information, you have to balance that with tremendous entertainment value or else you can't get away. It starts sounding dry and scholarly. So I am Mr. Montage. I'm so montage heavy, which means that you, you know, have the original raw footage and then you have the additional files you create to make the montage. So I'm into motion graphics. I'm into montages. And man, this thing is going to be just a monster of capacity. So to answer your question, I can't I can't really start cutting this thing in earnest until I get a new drive. Let's say for the sake of argument, it's done right now. OK, you've got the completed six episodes in your hand. What are your plans for it? Uh, you know, are you TV, DVD release, streaming on the Internet? What are the plans? Let's just for the sake of argument, it's done. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what I can do with it as far as, uh, I don't know, like I see stuff like Hulu and, and Netflix and Crackle and all these things, you know, do series with a, a, a order uh, with a, a episode count as low as, you know, six. I've seen four. So I'd love to do a six episode series and see where it could get placed on that. Traditional TV is kind of getting to be a dinosaur, so I'm really not even considering that. I insisted with Eurocrime, I insisted on making a two hour documentary and putting it on the festival circuit, knowing that that was going to be a major hindrance for the doc getting selected. And we did OK. We, you know, we played festivals all around the world. I think, you know, 10 different countries and it, uh, you know, won some festivals for best documentary and it got some, you know, best of the fest pick from, you know, various newspapers like in San Francisco and stuff. Uh, so it actually did really well, despite being two hours, which is an eternity for a documentary on a f festival. So I'm just like really committed to doing things definitively. Like with Eurocrime, my choices were could I do I could do either a 90 minute doc that would be fun and anecdote driven and we'd all, you know, laugh. And, you know, some star would say, you know, tell an anecdote about, you know, how he didn't like an actress. So he took a dump in her dressing room or, you know, something like that. I could just put together the most kind of sensationalistic anecdotes and we'd all have a good time. And then we'd instantly forget it the moment we filed out of the theater or I could spend a year editing it and I could, uh, you know, just densely pack in information and just like, you know, really try to impart as much info as possible and make you an instant expert on Eurocrime. And that's what I did. But the trade-off is that you have to spend a lot of time editing it and, you know, make it fun and, you know, try to keep the pacing up to balance the amount of, of stuff that's flying at the viewer. Well, for plastic movies, then, what – have you run into any problems? Have you run into any maybe, say, footage you wanted to use? A distributor was like, uh, you, you're talking shit about us. No, no rights are granted. Well, well, that's that's the thing. It's one of the major hassles and headaches for Eurocrime was the clip licensing. And with Plastic Movies Rewound, a lot of the directors we're talking to are kind of the lower tier directors. You know, I don't mean that as any kind of slight. These guys were just working with lower budgets. And the good news about that is that after these things were uh, initially distributed, a lot of times the films reverted back to the directors. The rights uh, reverted back to the directors. So a lot of times these uh, directors 
are in possession of their movies or own their movies again and are able to license them to me. And uh, like we were able to interview this guy, Jim Lowe, who published the world's first publication about home video called The Video File. It actually started in 1976, a year after the first Betamax deck arrived on the, the market. And so uh, Jim licensed me all the, the video file covers and, and inside articles and stuff like that. And that's going to be a tremendous value as a cutaway. You know, I can, you know, be some interviewee will be talking about a subject and I can cut away to an article about the same thing. So I got visuals. It's cool. What was your biggest headache? Because, I mean, you said it was the, the film licensing and these are the lower echelon directors. But have you had any companies that maybe you wanted to use a clip from that outright said no? Or is it just you You kind of knew you had an in since these guys kind of own their own stuff at this well, point? Well, the film licensing headache was on Eurocrime. Uh, with these films that I'm hoping to use clips from on Plastic Movies Rewound, it's the directors themselves that own the movies again. So they're able to license me directly, and I haven't had a problem with that. That's been really cool. That's kind of you know part of the business model of Plastic Movies Rewound. Kind of one of the things I wanted to learn from Eurocrime and do differently this time around is you know do do something where the the subject I can use clips film clips very easily without any kind of major legal expense. Well, since you've gone through these interviews and you've you've conducted them and you talked to all these people, have you come to a conclusion on why VHS is somehow making a comeback? And I'm not complaining because I'm a VHS collector myself, but what is it about the cultural zeitgeist that within the last five years recaptured this, in your opinion? Oh, I don't know. I think part of it has to do with you know the fact that we do our routine viewing now on streaming and VOD, so the reasons for owning physical media become different. Like The reasons for owning physical media can be collectability, it can be really cool packaging and artwork, stuff like that, because we know we're going to do our routine viewing you know, through some kind of streaming service, a lot of us at least. That has to do with it also, you know, the end of an era, the fact that video stores, brick-and-mortar video stores are closing left and right. You know, that just gluts, you know, used stuff, you know, and of course it's mainly DVD right now, but it kind of gluts stuff onto the market and makes it, it also it just puts VHS it puts video in our mind the fact that we see these closing signs everywhere we go and we realize this is an end of an era and we want to you know latch onto some kind of nostalgia maybe you don't think it's kind of like an almost hipster like it's not cool so that makes it cool kind of thing no I don't I don't know I I get the sense that a lot of these guys um, you know because yeah there's some Johnny Come Lately hipsters that are collecting VHS but a lot of these guys even the young guys have been doing it for years. So I think there's like an intrinsic, you know, as one of our interviewees said, uh, you know, videotape is much more a cousin, a cinematic cousin to film than, you know, anything that spins on a disc because, you know, one thing unspools, it unspools on one reel and, uh, you know, collects on another. And, you know, that makes it a cinematic cousin. You know, I don't know. There's, there's something... There's something nice about the format. I've always maintained that horror plays better on VHS. I feel like I've said this in a million times a million times in interviews by now, but when you watch the original Toby Hooper Texas Chainsaw Massacre on VHS, you got some kind of soft VHS uh, transferred from some faded film print. Been watched a million times. There's video dirt and stuff on there. It just feels so illicit and underground. It feels like you've been handed a snuff tape from some guy in a trench coat 
and that's what you're watching. When you watch the same film on a pristine Blu-ray, you don't get that feeling at all. So where can people find the Kickstarter for Plastic Movies Rewound? Yeah, pretty easily searchable for uh, on Kickstarter, uh, Plastic Movies Rewound. You can go to facebook.com slash Plastic Movies Rewound, and we're constantly uh, promoting the Kickstarter there. What are some of the alternatives you're offering for people that donate? I really created the $75 level because I didn't want to be this arrogant bastard who just said, uh, yeah, yeah, you donate and you get a copy of my movie. I didn't want to be that guy. So knowing that there are a lot of collectors out there, I created the $75 level where you not only get the film, uh, we're gonna uh, we're talking to somebody already to do a double VHS clamshell of all six episodes, but you're also going to get a um, assigned VHS or DVD, most of them from our interviewees, a signed non-movie item, like a magazine signed by the publisher, uh, like video file ep- uh, issues. We have video file issues, stuff like that. We have some unused artwork from some of the filmmakers, and they've signed that, and then a mystery item. And then you also get MP3 downloads from the soundtrack and a special thanks. All for $75. So I think that's six six things you get for $75. All right. Thank you very much, Mike Malloy. Cool. Thank you. Both of you guys being slightly younger than me, I'm sure you remember by the 90s when home video was totally entrenched into our culture. Do you think we started to take it for granted by the time you saw those blockbuster commercials with Jim Belushi as a dancing guinea pig and all this? Because the market had changed so much from the 1980s to the 1990s, didn't it? Well, you know, I mean, we just, everyone just got used to the idea of being able to go out, rent a movie, buy a movie, have a movie on VHS. Everyone just got used to that. You know, it's hard to... It's it's interesting, you know, when you think back to... Uh, okay, okay, for a good example, look at when Siskel and Ebert did their special on VHS. And they're flabbergasted. They're astounded. Like, this is a miracle from God that I can go to a store and own a copy of Gandhi to watch it literally any time I want. So, yeah, as time goes on, you kind of forget about the beginning of of it there, and it's just a way of life. You can say that about really any form of technology. You can say that about the Internet. You can say that about cable television. It's just normal now. Yeah, it's hard to remember uh, with any technology. Oh, remember how it used to be before we had this? You know, because, as Brad says, it's become so ingrained and, you know, this is just how it is now. Like, there's a whole generation of people that are going to grow up not knowing what non-HD is. There's also a generation, and I'm not saying this in a snide way, but it might come out as such, that don't understand what it's like to not have everything on demand. To not just decide... I want to watch a Godzilla movie. There's either the rental store or there's on demand or there's a torrent instead of, you know what? I want to watch a Godzilla movie. There's one on in three months, you know, that in a way I do think it does spoil you as a movie fan, but it also opens up totally new avenues that you do get to watch more things than just whatever a network programmer or a VHS distributor wanted to put out. Having a lot more open for you having a lot more stuff that's more convenient easier to find you know if, if you feel like watching a giallo flick uh, uh hey here's one right here you know if you feel like watching a slasher movie oh sweet there's like 80 of them on on demand 
for me, the only and and believe me, I I I totally get that convenience. I do. It, it certainly helps me out a lot. It does with with what I do for a living. That that does certainly help me out. For me personally, I mean, the, the only kind of downside of that is uh, there's just less weird stuff that I would just happen to come across now. I mean, there's stuff that I there's weird stuff that I can come across, but there's there are things that I watched when I was younger that I watched just because it was on. And who knows, nowadays I might not have seen some of those movies because I'd be flipping through a hundred, I'd be flipping through thousands of titles at my hand and be, just be like, no, 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 no. So I kind of prefer growing up, I kind of, and that's, con- and believe me, that's convenient for me now, but I kind of prefer growing up growing up being a kid being a kid being being in grade school being in junior high i kind of like the fact that i found all of this really really weird stuff and watched it because that's what was on do you think that that direct to video because direct to video became a huge deal in the early 80s do you think releasing something direct to the video market was the equivalent of what the drive-in movie was in the 70s or do you think direct to video was opening up an entirely new avenue cuz i'm of the mind direct to video opened up an entire new landscape all those direct to video movies we were seeing in the late 80s and early 90s those would have never been able to play at a drive-in this to me opened up a whole new marketplace that changed cinema i i agree with that yeah i absolutely agree it is like the drive-in because, I mean, you, you had these companies like Vidmark that were putting out all these great direct-to-video movies that you knew you had a built-in market, which also goes to my point of how much the market had changed. And then, Brad, you've got something that I know you like a lot, shot on Shidio, <laughs> that you were able to literally shoot your movie on videotape, distribute mm-hmm. it that way, and make a little bit of money. Something you mm-hmm. were not able to do prior to, say, 1986. Black Devil Doll what, from Hell was like 1984. Because um, I, I believe the first commercial, the first movie ever shot on video that was a non-porno was Night Sledgehammer in 1983, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, but, they, but they didn't make a whole lot of money at that point. It didn't mm. become a viable alternative till the mid-80s. And, and, well, and we also can't leave out porno. You know, porn shot on video, shot on videotape. That was huge. I mean, who would have ever thought that a porno movie could move 30,000 tapes in a week? But then let's also talk about where we got all these things. The video store. That beautiful, beautiful mom-and-pop non-blockbuster video store. I loved those places. Because it didn't matter that the movie you rented probably sucked that beautiful cover art made that rental worth it didn't it oh yeah and you know there's 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 several reasons why i love collecting big box vhs tapes because there's there's i don't know there's just something so epic about them there's something so mentally valuable about them it's like creating your own freaking library of awesome (laughs) and the fact that the movie's rarely ever even lived up to 10% of the beautiful cover, too. Yeah, VHS did that really, really, really well, enticing you with just a cover, enticing you with a cover, with 
a t- not only a title, but also the font of that title. They were really, really, really good at that, which is something that was uh, kind of lost on DVD a lot of times. Well, and I think part of that comes down to the difference we have today when, like, yes, technically flipping through the, the cover art on Netflix is the same thing as we used to do in the video store. At the same time, they don't have those salacious-ass covers anymore, so I do think there is a false equivalency when people make that argument. I, yeah, I think I, <laughs> I think that I think that Scream ruined the VHS cover. Yeah, and there, most, <laughs> most covers now on DVD, they're just shrunk-down versions of the movie poster. Even then, the movie poster is usually, and, and I know how weird this is going to sound, live action. It, it's usually like a still or a photo, something Photoshop. In in the VHS era, they hired painters. They painted uh-huh. these beautiful original pieces of art, or like in some cases, just reuse a piece of art that they had. Remember that beautiful DEFCON 4 cover that completely mm-hmm. missold that movie, Brad? Yeah. That's actually from a role-playing game. That's the cover of a role-playing game module that they just modified. That I didn't very, care. That cover made me buy that movie. That very misleading cover for Chud 2. Yeah, oh, yes, co- I rented to- Chud 2 because of that cover. Yeah, that, to- that cover was totally misleading. It made you believe there were Chuds in it. And not Buds. But, but then, you know, and to me, that is a false equivalency, because I hear people today constantly say, flipping through the cover art on Netflix is the same as going to the old video store, but I don't have to leave my house. And I'm saying, no, it's not. It it really isn't. I prefer going to the video store than cruising through Netflix. Even though I have Netflix, and I I certainly do do it, but I certainly go to the prefer going to the video store because it seems to me that like choice matters more when you go to a video store because you've got to make a much wiser decision when you're at a video store. Like these are the two movies I'm picking out. These are the two movies that I'm going home with and that I'm stuck with. So there's, there's a sense of risk right there. You know, Netflix, you'll be cruising through Netflix on the TV. And if you come across a movie, you start watching it, you don't like it. It's like, Oh, well, I guess I'll stop watching this and watch one of the other millions of movies that are on here. There's also the, oh, that sounds good, but not good for now. I'll watch it later. And then there, there's one other aspect, too. The the weird collecting aspect that we hinted at earlier. This has grown to be a huge movement, the VHS collector. I think one of the things, and, and, and there is a, a certain digital snobbery that comes in. And mm-hmm. for once, I'm not the one being the snob. It's snobs about people to me. That I know people who refused to do with VHS. I would. I, I had one guy when I back when I worked at Channel 26, I would rather not watch the movie than have to watch it on VHS. That it, Dep- it, it was this digital snobbery. They've grown so used to digitally remastered widescreen stereo that they can't imagine just watching the movie for the movie. I can, I can totally understand not wanting to watch a certain movie if it's not in widescreen. So I think it kind of, for me anyway, it sort of depends on the movie that we're talking about here. I get that. I get not wanting to watch a certain movie widescreen because pans can't can really suck and take Ghostbusters is the worst I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. So 
I can certainly see that with with whatever type of movie you're trying to watch. If you're if you're trying to watch like yeah, okay, Ghostbusters or Goodfellas or something like that. Uh Star Trek 2 has god awful pan and scanning. Then yeah, I can I can I can absolutely understand that point of view. But the, the the one in question with the I'd rather not watch the movie was something that was unavailable on DVD. That they were talking about, hey, I wanted to see this movie I haven't seen since I was a kid. They look it up, oh, it's not on DVD. I said, oh, I've got a VHS of that. And then it was, oh, I'd rather not even watch it than lower myself to VHS just to see the movie. That's the kind of snobbery I'm talking about. And I've run into that more than once, that, oh, it's not on DVD? Well, then I don't care. That's that's unfortunate, but again, it's it, that to me that's to me that's really, really, really snobbery. If we're talking about something like if if I I don't know if 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 we're talking about something like Chud, I guess, or I I I, I don't know, uh, something like that where it, it looks it looks the same on DVD as it does on on VHS, then you get into snobbery. But it, it's like I said, I. I get that if we're talking about if we're if if you're talking about uh something like yeah the Godfather Part Two or whatever I I, I get that I mean I can watch I can, I can watch it on VHS I'd rather watch that widescreen but you know right but but then you you also have the the availability think about all the movies that are on Netflix all the movies that are on streaming all the movies that are on DVD nowadays. And you realize that that is only 50% at most of all the movies put out on VHS. That VHS lasted for almost 20 years. No other video format has ever lasted that long, and I don't think will again, to the mm. point where they have a library that that you'll never get as much of a library as is available on VHS. And that, I well, think, is one of the, the big crowns. I still find movies today at Goodwill where I, I'll, I'll buy it for a dollar, and I'm like, this thing doesn't even have an IMDb listing, let alone a goddamn DVD release. I've seen that more often with DVD than I have VHS. Stuff coming out on DVD that doesn't have an IMDb listing, or at least not a very specific one. DVD did a, a lot of favors for exploitation films. DVD made exploitation a lot more widely available than VHS did, and uncut as well. A lot of times you would come across like an Italian exploitation film on VHS, and it would be very butchered. It would be very cut. And even then, you were lucky if you even found it in the first place. DVD made that, uh, and that's that's one advantage to me that DVD has. Well, DVD has a lot of advantages. But, yeah, I was going to say, um, it's got a lot more than that. But it's got, it, well, I, I didn't say that that was the only one, but it's but yeah dvd has a lot of advantages to me that's that's one of them like exploitation really really found a home with dvd to a degree it did with laserdisc as well because that's where they started doing that mm-hmm. that they started doing it those took off the first time it's uncut DVD, yeah, yeah 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 but dvd dvd like you laser yeah laserdisc had that too but way 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 more with dvd yeah because dvd was a more widely accepted format yeah really but but I, I just think that that is so weird that that there are some estimates within the home video community and, and i mean like you know people that run studios and that that say 
There are thousands and thousands of movies that you can get on videotape that will most likely never see a legitimate DVD release because they don't even know who owns these things anymore. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of cases where the only way you're going to see a movie uh-huh. is on VHS. And yeah. I think that's that that's a really interesting aspect to the VHS collector. And you, you've <laughs> even got all these new places. I mean, Charles Band is re-releasing his Wizard Video stuff. Wild Eye releasing is is doing big boxes. Troma did the Troma did the Toxic Avenger big box release. House of the Devil, Clamshell. They're yeah. actually putting out new VHSs. I think five, six years ago, no one would have thought that people that a company would put out a new VHS tape, you know? Uh-huh. I think they thought after History of Violence, the whole format was just done. Was History of Violence the last thing to come on VHS? The last uh, wide release VHS okay. was History of Violence. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. The, the last wide release Laserdisc was Sleepy Hollow. Those kind of movies can really get away with that because they're certainly catering to that fan base. I mean, hell, I'm we're both part of that fan base. They get that, you know, if you, if, you, if the, that the crowd that's going to own something like a house of the devil or the toxic Avenger would really, really, really dig and, and get a real kick out of it being released in a clamshell or a big box VHS. I mean, that really shows you how much they know their audience. That. And like in the case of the wizard video ones, the reason that they did it was, basically a glitch in the in the legal wording because yeah. Charles Band when he licensed movies like I Spit on Your Grave and stuff like that he licensed them for videotape so he doesn't have the rights to put I Spit on Your Grave out on DVD uh-huh. he still owns the VHS rights in perpetuity nice so he can keep putting that out on VHS but it's format specific so he saw an opportunity I still own these things where I don't own the digital rights. Let's make some money. And I think that's both genius and kind of sleazy to the original, you know, like I spit on your grave producers and that, but that's the way the business goes. So you as a VHS collector, if anyone's looking, what is your holy grail? Do you have a tape that you are just dying for? Like, would you spend the 700 bucks on a Tales of the Quad Dead Zone that it recently (laughs) sold for? (laughs) You know, if, if, if I could, if, <laughs> if, you know, financially, you know, if I could, if I could be the kind of guy who was like, yeah, screw it. I'll spend $700 on a tape, whatever. Then yeah, I would do that. I would totally do that. <laughs> Same with Black Devil Doll from Hell. I would, I would, I would buy that. That one only um, goes for a couple of hundred. Yeah, yeah. Tales of the Quad Dead Zone is officially the rarest VHS yeah. out there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I was the type of person who could spend seven hundred dollars on a tape, yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would certainly buy that. I, you know, I don't know what my holy grail is right now because for the longest time, my holy grail was, uh, and not that it's the most rare tape in the world, but it was uh, the the Warner clamshell for The Shining because uh, that just at our video store that always stuck out like a sore thumb to me. You know, it, it made me. It was like always there whenever you walked in. And it it just it was in that big clamshell and stuck out. It made me want to see that movie. Yeah. So to me, I I was like, man, I really want to find that tape. I really, really want to find that clamshell. Like that would be so cool if I actually own that since it's since it the tape 
just the, that cover just left such a lasting memory in my head from going to the video store. And surprisingly, it was very hard to find for a while. It was incredibly hard. It, it, it took me a while to find that. It, it did. It took me longer than I, I thought it would. Because really, Warner clamshells aren't that freaking hard to find. But that one was. My holy grail in general is Blood Circus on any format at all. Just, I need that movie. But no, I, I agree with you. I'd love to, I, I do want to see Blood Circus. I, I'm like Brad. I don't know if I have a specific Holy Grail tape. I mean, there are ones that I'll, I'll kind of not even think about until I see them on eBay or in somebody's collection, and I'll go, "Oh, I want that." Like you, you've got that big box of Orson Welles' The Witching. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I still can't find one of those on eBay, you cocksucker. I still want to find one of those. I've got one that's worth like three hundred. I don't know because these haven't sold yet. Somebody on Amazon is asking $900 a piece for some Todd Sheets VHS tapes. (laughs) But so far, the highest selling tape has been Tales of the Quad Dead Zone. There uh, there was uh, on Amazon, there's like a $1,000 Godfrey Ho tape. I think it's for Ninja Commandments. So we also need to talk about, real quick, VHS, not commercially, but blank tapes. They allowed us to save things that even, I mean, like when USA Network was was going to do their like a 20 or 25th or 30th anniversary special, they actually came to the fans and said, hey, do you guys have any of our old bumpers on tape? We didn't save them. Did you? You know, and the Sci-Fi Channel did the same thing. We didn't save them. Did you guys record any of them? And I think that's just kind of stupid and kind of amazing at the same time that we recorded all this stuff that the studios themselves thought, why the hell do we need to save this? Oh, people recorded everything. On my last snob episode, when I needed uh, footage from the preview channel in the 1990s, I I knew right away I'd be able to find it because people just recorded everything. Yeah, and and that's something else that... People forget that nowadays, you know, you got your DVRs and that, but we recorded everything in the 80s. I mean, mm-hmm. you can find an original off-air of just about any TV show that ever aired in America. Yeah, you can yeah. Find like, somebody oh, recorded it. So, oh, sweet. Somebody recorded every episode of Jennifer Slept Here. <laughs> <laughs> My holy grail on that account is either... The one episode of Beverly Hills Bunts I'm missing, I'm missing episode four. Otherwise, I've got all the others. This TV series I've never seen, but I've got all the promos for it. It was like a proto-Oz from 1987 starring Kathy Baker called called Mariah. I've never seen it, but in all my Max Headroom tapes, it's previewed for like coming this Friday, you know, new episode this Friday. Lasted seven episodes. I still cannot find a single person that recorded an episode of Mariah, the prison show from ABC. And I want to see that because the previews I've got look pretty damn cool. My holy grail on that. And this is something that didn't even air is that pilot for the live action clerk series. Kevin Smith buried that man. You're never going to see that. Kevin Smith bought it and put it in a vault. I've seen still shots. I have too, but I don't think. The we'll, see I, that the, we'll see that the same day we see the day the clown cried. Actually, my, my holy grail on that role of something that never aired would be Operation Aliens, 
Mm. Remember when all those aliens action figures came out in the early 90s? Yeah. That was supposed to be part of a cartoon. They produced a pilot for it, and they shelved it because it was too violent. No one's ever seen the show was called Operation Aliens. Oh, wow. I'm an Aliens fan. I want this. 20th Century Fox has this in a vault somewhere. So that one, if somebody can get me a bootleg of Operation Aliens, you don't know what sexual favors I will be willing to give up for you. (laughs) Old episodes of Doctor Who, like the ones that aren't widely available. The the lost episodes? The lost episodes, because they put together a lot of the early stuff from people's VHS recordings, but not everybody had the stuff for them to work from. And, and you know, there, there is a lot of lost stuff out there, a lot of local stuff, local public access stuff that I always find very interesting, local horror hosts. You had sometimes weird local edits of movies, like the horror host would edit himself jokingly like hiding behind a tombstone in night of the living dead when they showed it in 1987 that kind of stuff i think is real unique and i i always get really excited when i find somebody that has a tape of that and sends it to me you know so where can we find brad analog man jones <laughs> uh the cinema snob.com where can we find alex tape break jowski geekjuicemedia.com and Josh Lorez Hadley can be found at 1201beyond.com. And you can reach the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. Have a high impact Lorez day, guys. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Yeah!
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.